here we are in another uh, super heavy moment in, in our country, in our community, in our houses, in our bodies. Uh, I, I was sharing with you as we were preparing uh, to kind of go live is that I don't, you know, the universe conspired, I think, to bring us together because I'm in a moment where um, fellowshipping with people that get it matter. And um, you have been directly in this work uh, longer than I have uh, been. And I just want to get a sense of what's on your heart right now. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, Shannon. I appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to be with you. Um, you are absolutely right that we need uh, folks who share this common experience in this time. We need uh, to listen and be able to share deeply and openly with one another. Uh, and, um, and that's really what's on my heart, uh, quite frankly. Um, I have been in the last 24 hours uh, with um, wrestling with the realities of um, the pandemic and, and protests for, for freedom and justice in America. Uh, and, you know, the announcement um, related to um, essentially no charges, let's be clear, no charges for the officers uh, who uh, are responsible for Breonna Taylor's death. And so it just, it remembers, it puts back together um, the reality of the diminished value of Black life in America, um, particularly for Black women. Um, and, I, and I find myself, as I shared with someone yesterday, triggered um, by this moment where I see um, communities boarding up buildings and property to protect the property from the people whom they plan to disappoint. And I see communities pay millions of dollars to ask people to go away because they can't give them the reality of justice of giving them the lives of their family members. And I experience the irony of the moment where we lift up the value of quote unquote frontline healthcare workers who have kept us safe in the context of a pandemic. Uh, and yet uh, a black one in her twenties who was sleeping in her bed um, is, does not warrant um, charges uh, when she's killed for being startled. I just, um, I hurt right now. I um, am triggered in this moment and, and I need my people. I need community. Yeah, I um, sat yesterday and I said, there were people that emailed and said, oh, there was an indictment. No, there was no indictment yesterday. There was a charge for the bullets that went through a wall of a neighbor's, a white neighbor's home, as I understand it, but not for bullets that went through Brianna Taylor's body. Yeah. And no charges for the bullets that went through the upstairs neighbor who was black. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I am just sitting here saying, are these lives given to us in this moment to make so clear the injustice? Like how much more clear does it need to be before we really move on 
significant change. Yeah, I, I wrestle with this and we, we get to the structural realities, right? I, I don't know that it's not clear. Uh, I don't know that people don't understand. Uh, one of my, the shadow sides of, uh, of my own approach to leadership, my wife tells me, uh, is that I expect people to know better. Uh, and, uh, and I shouldn't expect people to know better, but, but that's kind of where I come from. I, I don't believe that people need to be convinced. I don't believe that there needs to be further evidence. I'm finally at the point where I believe some people, um, we just need to prevail over because the reality is we're, this is a power problem. The reality is uh, folks have learned the lesson. I was in a conversation with Reverend Sharpton uh, last week, and he said, you know, what validated the protest movement in the 1960s was the Voter Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. So we remember those protests and that movement um, with high regard for advancing American society because of the validation of the public policy change. I think in as much as he has learned that lesson, policymakers have learned that lesson in Washington, D.C. And so people stand pat and refuse to move the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act through the U.S. Senate as an act to assure that this movement of protest is not validated. Um, not that it didn't produce the legislation, it has, it has passed the, the House of Representatives, but that, that passage through the Senate, the, the signing into law would validate this moment uh, so we wouldn't be having arguments about whether people are protesting without a perspective or a point, uh, or prospecting without an end in mind. There's a very clearly articulated end in mind. Um, that is the freedom of people from the terrorism um, that is exhibited through the criminal justice system for black and brown people in this country. What we lack right now is a political power uh, to move it through the systems of government uh, to implement the kind of public policy change that is required. So this is not about people being convinced. This is about people um, being prevailed upon with more power and us getting more power to the people who actually want change. Yeah. The other thing that I was sitting in yesterday as I was convinced that there would be protests across the country and I was convinced that it would uh, grow into um, actions of despair, right? Um, and knowing the conversations that I have been in around um, behaviors, around looting, around the lighting of fires, around disruptive behavior, um, in light of these decisions, um, I remember just really simply just stopping and praying and saying, please don't riot. Please let this moment be about the injustice that happened. And let's not allow for the media and others to pivot to the behavior in the communities that have been victimized. Not agreeing with behavior. And then we see the, the officers that were shot. And you were in Ferguson, and we'll talk about that. And we know that Ferguson, there were so many peaceful protests. And we know that there were some disruptors. And I'm curious on how you were able to balance 
or to, or even if you spent the energy talking to people that wanted to, right? Like, you know, do you even expend the energy with that, with that, um, with that frame of mind? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really, it's really difficult to talk about this um, objectively without objectifying. Um, so I think the only way to recognize and to truly honor uh, what's happening with people um, is to segment in a few ways. Number one, we have to honor that people have been traumatized persistently and triggered acutely in these moments. And so there are those, when you are in the street, on the ground, with people in the midst of that triggering and the experience of that trauma, then you know they need care. And so part of the energy you've got to give if you love people, if you love humanity, is you've got to give care to that energy. And, you know, you, you talk to others who have been on the, who are on the ground in Ferguson, like um, Brother Sekou, and, and, and I'm sure he would attest. Now, part of what our responsibility was to, was to provide care to people who were triggered and traumatized. And that's how you, that's the energy that you give it, right? Uh, cause, because, because to speak about that expression um, that comes out in a manner that people don't understand in moments when they're grieving, when they're mourning, uh, when they're hurting, um, is to objectify that humanity as if it is, um, it, as if it is to be uh, intellectually cogently linear. There is nothing, permission to speak freely. There ain't nothing about our emotions that's linear. If you ever loved anybody, there ain't nothing linear about love. And so when people are in pain and they're hurting, there's nothing linear, there's nothing intellectual, there's nothing cognitively aligned about that. So the energy that you've got to give it is loving care. That's first and foremost. Second, I've got to say, we've got to honor, especially in this moment when there's so much evidence of it, that public protest and peaceable assembly continues to be jacked by people who want to advance a narrative that it is somehow violent when it's really a response to violence. What do I mean? On the night of the announcement of the No True Bill and the Darren Wilson case in Ferguson, uh, um, there were people who came into the community with long guns, were sitting on the top of buildings, pointing them down at us in the street as we got tear gas. And those people were not police. Those people uh, were carrying guns in order to implement violence upon us. And we have seen, as we saw in Minneapolis, that there were people who lit things on fire in the midst of protests who were not there for the protest. So it's Jacob Blake, right? Jacob Blake, the shooting. Like, he walked past the police with his long gun. Right. And earlier in the night, he had been in conversation with the police, uh, talking about how he was there to protect property. So we've got to honor first and foremost, people are traumatized and being triggered. We've got to honor second that there are people engaged uh, using the cover of the protest in order to engage in anarchy. And those are not always people who are there for the cause. Sometimes it's people who are there to demean the cause. And finally, we got to come back to the very real matter that we have malformed memory about protest and peaceable assembly in American life. We act like, right, we compare this moment to the Montgomery bus boycott 
as if people were happy with the Montgomery bus boycott. We compare this moment uh, to King's march through Memphis as if that march was successful on King's first or second try. It wasn't. It was successful on Coretta Scott King's third try. We act as if the Boston Tea Party was something that was not subversive in American history. Nobody wants protest when it happens. And so we critique it and say things, we add addendums to it, we use words like peaceful to make it sound better. We don't want any kind of protest, let's own it. And we don't think positively about any until we want to compare it to the moment by way of critiquing the moment. So, so let's be clear. Protest is to disturb the peace. It is to disturb the peace. It is to disturb the status quo because the status quo is killing black and brown people, young and poor people, queer and trans people. So I don't, I don't understand any protest that's peaceful because it is there to disturb the peace. And there is no protest that is welcome because the system desires stasis. And so I, I, I um, peaceable assembly, which is what most of these things are, I just want to use the language of the Constitution, is a right of ours. The Declaration, the Constitution does not give police the option um, of declaring something that was peaceable, unpeaceable. Declaring it unlawful is the language that they use. And I've seen them too many times declare a gathering where people are grieving as an unlawful assembly so they could do whatever they wanted to do. Like they did last night so just, and, and right with Brianna Taylor. I'm watching it on television where these people are pre peacefully protesting, if we want to use that language. They're walking down the street to express the injustice, right? Their reaction to an injustice. And I'm watching the police tackling people that were peacefully walking and like raging, right? Bringing more rage into a, a situation they're not caring for, right? And, and let me just be clear, like I have officers in my family. This is not um, anything, like all the officers were not doing that, but it's very, very clear that they did not help what happened yesterday. And what's interesting about Louisville is that if we, if we track the last 195 days uh, of pain, of grief, of mourning, <clears throat> and we have seen um, what we saw in Ferguson, which is we know how to de-escalate. <laughs> Actually, doling down police presence, pulling the National Guard out has actually kept things more peaceful over time. What happened at the, at the, at the night of the announcement was they ratcheted up presence again when they had had things relatively managed throughout the process. And when you escalate presence of police, you actually get, or, or you, you, know, you put out people who are more armed or more guarded, more shielded, then you actually raise the anxieties of the community and the people. And this is where you begin to get conflict. So why, after managing relatively well a very tense situation for almost 200 days, folks decided to provoke hurting people on the night of the announcement, um, I just don't understand. But again, we don't, I'm just very clear that we don't do better when we know better. 
we do better when we are compelled to do better. Uh, and, I, and I really appreciate you making the point, Sean, there about officers, right? We all know individual officers uh, who do well, uh, who are faithful, valuable members of our communities and our congregations. This is not about officers. This is about a system of policing. This is about a system of criminal justice uh, that makes its bones on the backs of black and brown people, right? Um, you know, one of the things we talked about in Ferguson we got to know was that we got to disparate contact with black and brown communities because cities were balancing their budgets on the backs of tickets and fines. So they needed to have contact with people in order to get the revenue to pay the expenses of the city. Now, I don't know one police officer, still haven't met one, maybe you have, Shonda. I don't know one police officer who ever signed up, went through the academy, went through the training in order to write tickets. I don't know nobody who did that, right? No, they don't want to be armed collection agents for a system that is perverted. Nobody signs up for that, right? And so in this way, we have also made them subjects to systems of, of, of subjugation. We have made them subjects of a system of oppression and ripped elements of their identity away from them by putting them on an assignment that they never signed up. So this is and, not by not, and by not addressing the situation, we are actually making it more dangerous for them to police. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I'm, I'm not about anyone's humanity being diminished, right? Uh, I am about honoring, um, honoring those, and I feel compelled um, to even say this, as a, as a man of faith and as a clergy, as ordained clergy, uh, I say that the responsibility in all situations of oppression of the community of the church is to be on the side of the people with the least power. Right? In an imbalance, a situation of oppression or violence, it is the responsibility of people of faith, especially Christian people, to be on the side of the people with the least power. And so when I speak, I speak with that in mind, I speak with that ethic, right? And so the communities who get uh, prevailed upon, the people who get killed and don't get remembered, who get disappeared, when an attorney general speaks, whose life is devalued, those are the people that people of faith have a responsibility to speak up for. So I, I appreciate that people have, as I have had, you know, quite frankly, growing up in the life of the church, a police officer was one of my most significant mentors, helped to shape me, uh, helped to mold me, uh, helped to keep me to be a, a person of faith in the life of the church. And I understand I got friends and pastor friends who have good deacons who are officers in their churches. Uh, and good disciples in the life of the congregation. Um, but I don't understand good Christian people, good people of faith, who can't stand up and call the kinds of violence that we have seen, call the kind of racism that we have seen within these police departments out. And I don't know, if, if, if the blue code is more important to you, or the blue shield is more important to you, or the thin blue line is more important to you, in your life of discipleship, I think you need to wrestle with that. You and God need to have a conversation about that because the racists that we found out about when we did studies on the St. Louis Police Department and their emails, we know that 10 to 15% of the department is walking around with those kind of racist views. It took, it took public investigation and media support to find that out about the police departments 
for us outside the department. It doesn't take that for the black and brown officers to know that they know who the racists are. And so I don't understand how you're a faithful disciple in somebody's church and you're covering that up. And so I don't understand why a pastor would defend that officer. Yeah. So you just raised something else and then you brought out Reverend Sharpton's, um, uh, you brought up Reverend Sharpton and he was here in Minneapolis following George Floyd and at the George Floyd Memorial that was aired, um, he talked about the knee on the neck of Black Americans in, 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 in everyday world. Like the knee has been on our necks, right? Like the analogy of that, right? Um, and what it just, it, it just struck me that, uh, and, and, and essentially what he was saying is that you have brown and black people in your organizations, in your churches, in your business, in your foundations, in your nonprofits, and your whatever, right? Like there are people that are saying, in, in essence, get your knee off my neck, listen to the injustice, understand what my experience is. And that is also true for black officers and officers that understand what is happening to brown and black communities. And they do know what's happening and they are also not being listened to. And they're also being attacked by community in terms of like, why are you aligning with, with the people that are harming us? And so they're in a very tough position. And I'm wondering if you have um, any, any insight because they're operating in a system and they also need to protect their lives. Yeah, I, I encourage, you know, a couple of things. In, in St. Louis, um, some people will um, decry this and some people will applaud this. We have, two, we have two police unions. We've got the official police union and we have a black police union, the Ethical Society of Police. And so the same things that have helped us to build power um, within systems um, broadly uh, will work for police who are trying to do this as, as well. So I think uh, with the kinds of issues that we have, I, I don't see how a major city, at least, doesn't have a black police union that is contending for power uh, within um, those systems as well in an organized approach and way. Uh, because it knows, quite frankly, that even the union itself is complicit. Um, so I think there has to be some organization among African-American officers uh, who believe that this is a challenge uh, in the same way that, quite frankly, these kinds of subset caucus groups and otherwise uh, live within major corporations, uh, within, um, with, within large corporations in our community, right? So if there could be a black caucus uh, at Target uh, of their employees to make sure they're nurtured and supported and can contest and contend for resources and support for them, there should be a black police union in every major city throughout the United States of America, right? That's number one. Uh, number two, I think there, there should be um, there should be space, and they have to wrestle with um, what it means. To your point earlier, that their white colleagues, uh, let me just you know, I, no, not all their white colleagues, their white racist colleagues that are uh, that are terrorizing black communities are making them more unsafe. And so I think they've got to place a calculus uh, of, of greater value on the fact that they are being made unsafe by their white terrorizing colleagues than they are being made by, by depending on those same people to have their back, right? This is the irony. You're protecting those people because they got to have your back when you're on the street, when those are the people who are creating the separation between you and the community who sent you forth, 
right? Let's let's wrestle with this, right? Uh, I make this distinction all the time, and, and it's not just about police, it's also about politicians, it's also about pastors and preachers, right? I make the distinction between African-American elected officials and black politicians, right? African-American is a census category. Black is a consciousness and a commitment to a body of people who shape you and sent you forth. So if you're going to be a black police officer, you have to understand a responsibility to the black community that shaped you and sent you, gave you all the credentials to be accepted in the academy, gave you the nurturing and the support when you come home dejected by a situation on the force and in the office. It's it's your black family, it's your black community, it's your black church that gives you the oomph, that gives you the push, that gives you the energy to go back up that mountain again. And so when it comes to choosing between the system that's harming you too and the community that is actually shaping you to be able to be resilient in a system, choose your people every time. Yeah, yeah, I, I really super appreciate that. And so let's. So then you also made a distinction with white officers, right? You 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 backed it up and said not not all white officers. Let me be clear: it's the white racist officers. So. You know, in this argument that could be so polarizing and that could be so black and white, what I think is important about that statement is, is, is number one, what, what is it? Everyone that, that looks like you, right? Like, I mean, some of your people aren't your people. And so and there's other people that may not appear to be your people that are your people. And so can you talk about that on the white side? Yeah, I, I really appreciate, um, I've been wrestling this summer with my son, um, because he read uh, with a group this summer, Ibram Kendi's um, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And I love that my 15-year-old decided to push back against one of his teaching assistants who said that Black people can't be racist. And, and he, he read deeply the text. And he said, no, what we need to be thoughtful about is whether someone is racist or anti-racist. And this has to do with whether they're advancing racist ideals and policies, right? Um, and so I think that's a helpful frame. I think it's a remarkable gift that Dr. Kennedy has given us um, to think about who's being harmful in these situations. Uh, because if you, you know, if you're just looking for black and white, then you're confused when you hear the attorney general in Kentucky speaking yesterday um, um, because he's a black man member of a black fraternity, right? Got the, he's got the marks, he's checking them off, right? So I think it's really important for us to be mindful of these, this anti-racist frame, that it's really about who's advancing racist ideas, who's advancing racist policies, who's creating a context that allows that to shape how we interact with one another. Uh, and, and so in that, you know, I got to, you know, look, you made me too comfortable, Sean. I'm trying to be real nice and respectful, right? I don't I, want you. I want you to be real. Not <laughs> as much flame for black preachers who stand up behind the police chief after some black people got killed, as I have for white police officers, right? Um, because that's the same kind of that. My, quite frankly, that's even worse. That's a blessing of the system of injustice and oppression that is robbing the life and humanity that is God-breathed out of God's children. So no, it's not about black or white, it's about racism and about anti-racism. 
Uh, and we have to root that out based upon people's active behavior as it relates to these systems and policies and ideas. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about our kids. So you brought up your son who's 15 and um, listeners might hear your five-year-old daughter playing in the background. And what I actually love about, about the contracts of the conversation we're having is that I can hear your daughter being a five-year-old. Right, I can hear her playing um, in, in a way that is innocent, right? Well, you have a 15-year-old black son who is diving deep into um, injustice that are happening in our country while he's viewing black men and young people getting killed that go viral, that wrestles with his humanity and how we see him and how we um, see people that look like him and come from our community. And I have five kids. I have one daughter. I have four sons. So while we're in this moment, we're also responsible for the next generation who is thankfully carrying a baton, but they have a weight that I did not have growing up witnessing this. I may have heard about it, but I did not witness it. How do we, you know, you're getting ready to go into, you know, I think you may have started at the Children's Defense Fund, quite a legacy organization for you to lead into, but what about our children? Yeah, no, I appreciate you. Um, I appreciate you honoring the presence of my daughter in this 24-hour period when Brianna Taylor has been made invisible. Um, and to speak of my son, my 15-year-old son, I have, so I have um, three boys and, and one girl. Uh, and, uh, and my oldest son at the time that Michael Brown was killed was nine years old. So this 15-year-old was nine. And I recall one afternoon uh, in August, I picked them up from school, I picked up all the boys, had them in the backseat, had to run and uh, pick up, up some, um, some cleaning, some dry cleaning. Um, trying to, you know, be my good, respectable self. So I had to go pick up some suits from the dry cleaner. And I'm, I'm driving them back onto the house, and we hear on the radio updates about the situation in Ferguson and what is happening with Michael Brown. And my nine-year-old, who's now 15, says from the backseat, Dad, every time I hear about Michael Brown, my stomach starts to hurt. Right? He's not ill physically. He's experiencing in his body the expression of the trauma, right? This boy going to be all right, right? Number one indicator of the, of the well-being of a child is the education, the level of education of the mother. My wife is a doctor. She's a dentist. Uh, he's growing up in a solidly middle-class family with familial supports in a magnet and advanced school. He is largely going to be all right, but when he hears about it, his stomach starts to hurt. So I said that to say that is a moment of experience of trauma for him at nine years old that all of our children carry in this moment of American history. They carry it in their bodies. They will carry the impacts in their bodies. And we have to remember that we cannot shield them from it um, because they, they pick up as much, John Powell suggests, um, that, uh, that, it, that we are even foolhardy to speak of consciousness because our subconscious processes information so quickly that we can't even keep up, right? So I say that to say 
young people are experiencing this fully. They're taking it in. They know it. And so we've got to resource ourselves to be in dialogue with them about it. And we've got to keep them close to some hopeful resources. And in this unique moment, you speak of the work I'll be doing with the Children's Defense Fund. We also have to remember the uniqueness of 2020. We're going to remember 2020 for the protests. We're going to remember it for the pandemics. We're going to remember it for the presidential election. What we may forget is that 2020, according to U.S. Census estimates, is the first year in American history where the majority of children under the age of 18 are non-white. This is the first year the demographics aren't going back. When to speak of children, to speak of child well-being, is to speak of racial equity and racial justice, right? So I say that to say this is disproportionately important as black and brown children become the rising majority in American life, right? Uh, these are the people who are coming forth. And so to tend to their trauma, to tend to um, this moment for them and to create the conditions for them to fully live into their purpose is our essential call. I think about, I think I see over your shoulder, Sean, um, Eddie Glaude's Begin Again. Um, his work about James Baldwin's America and his lessons for our own. And, and, and one of the things I really appreciate about, the, about how he enters into that text where he starts talking about the ironies of America and the lie is he tells this story of Jimmy Baldwin in his first time meeting Stokely Carmichael, right? Uh, that he's invited in, uh, Jimmy's invited in by the nonviolent action group there. Uh, and uh, and after, uh, after he gives his talk at the symposium, he goes uh, to spend much of the night talking with these students in a, in a small apartment because he had need of Johnny Walker Black. Uh, I know I shouldn't have said that. Oh, you got <laughs> yes, I get it, though. <laughs> I understand that. <laughs> they stayed up all night solving all the problems of the world in 1963 in the midst of a moment very much like this. And what he says before he leaves is he commits his writing to them. He says that everything he writes as a black writer, he must write in order to protect them. And he, he finally closes out with these words uh, of goodbye to them. He says, I shall never betray you. And I think that's, that's the commitment we've got to make to our children. Uh, as we talk about having policy conversations, as we talk about how we will push into spaces to create the conditions for them to thrive, we have to first Imagine who is the young person that we most love, we feel most accountable to, and see ourselves making that pledge. I, Starsky Wilson, declare that I will never betray you. And that means we're going to lose some friends, right? We're not going to be able to walk the nice middle class path and not betray our children because that middle class path will have us to betray them. That, 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 that nice central mainstream path will not have us to push up against an election that will be contested and will be tense uh, and could lead to some major conflict. It, it, we, we, people are going to tell us to be, to be comfortable and to be civil uh, in order to keep things okay. No, no, no. If you do that, you might be betraying your child because they need an environment that is free and is open, that is actually democratic, doesn't just have the marks and ideals, that lives out the truth of the story we tell ourselves about America, but won't live in the lie. Yeah, and, and, and this conversation 
could appear that is only about the health and well-being of brown and black children. Right. But it is about the health and well-being of all of our children. Yeah, you know, the days after Charlottesville, I gave a talk in an in-service to educators in a largely white suburb called Webster Groves in the St. Louis region. We partnered with them to plant a Children's Defense Fund Freedom School in one of our local churches, but for students in that district. I'm so, your sorry. <laughs> I can hear her play and she is like having that effect there. Anyway, go ahead, I'm sorry to interrupt. She's fully in it, right? She's, she's, yeah, she's figuring out virtual school. She knows how to work teams better than me. Like all of that. Five years. I love it. Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. So uh, Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. you know, so, so days after Charlottesville, I'm giving a talk to all the educators in the Webster Growth Independent School District uh, about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so someone asked a question valuably, rightfully. What about, you know, we're talking about cultural competency, the need for cultural competence in education. What about our white students? They asked. I said, well, when I'm talking about the importance of cultural competence, and when I'm talking about the value of seeing black and brown students in the curriculum and in the books that are chosen, I'm talking as much about the mental health, stability, and well-being of white children as I am about black and brown children. Well, what do you mean? The shock of Charlottesville. And the young men, including some from one of our local universities who were out there with tiki torches surrounding the church where my dear and best friend Tracy Blackman was inside preaching to terrorize people of faith in an ecumenical and interfaith gathering. Part of what those white men were expressing was the jarring, triggering trauma of finding out that they have not been in the global majority in any of the days of their life. They grew up believing that the world should center around them rather than that they lived in a multiracial emerging democracy. They believed, based on a Western-centric perspective, that white people rule in the majority and are the majority in the world, when the truth is people of color have been the global majority for a long time. People of color are the global majority, but they got books and they learned in systems that centered them and didn't balance out a perspective of other people. And so they were absolutely vulnerable when someone offered them a white supremacist perspective. They were vulnerable when someone talked to them about the hierarchy of human value. They were vulnerable when someone told them that men should be in leadership all the time. They were absolutely vulnerable. And when the lights got turned on of a multiracial coalition in America that could elect black and brown people and that could put uh, queer and trans people in the office, they began to react in negative and violent ways. And I say, if you wanna care for young white boys and girls in a classroom, then you need to shape an environment that exposes them to the beauty, to the beauty of multi-ethnic, multi-racial diversity for their psyche and well-being, if nothing else. Because part of what we're wrestling with 
is that people are being shot into the fact that they've got to share the world with other people. And what's unfortunate is that we as adults have allowed them to believe that they didn't for so long. We got a responsibility to care for them. Yeah, that's a, that's a word right there. <laughs> I have um, two, two other things that um, I want to touch on. One is Black people in leadership. And the number of conversations that I'm sitting in, right? So we're talking about our children, we're talking about the system, we're talking about injustice. And then we have leaders that are in position um, that have a responsibility in their communities, in their organizations, in their institutions that are also grieving, that are also in a moment of sheer exhaustion, um, in some cases feeling hopeless, in some cases feeling invisible, in some cases feeling insufficient, and in most cases feeling all of those things, <laughs> right? And so do you have a word for how we need to care for each other and for people that are on those teams, for people that are, are those peers, for people that are responsible for being in relationship to those people, what might be some ways in which they can honor the leadership and what's required? Yeah, no, I really appreciate this question. Uh, I, I wish I could attribute, um, give attribution better uh, to this statement, um, but it was just one of the brilliant think pieces that was put out there in the midst of this uh, moment. Uh, and it's that, you know, everyone should know, every leader should know, every corporate leader should know, every nonprofit leader should know that your black people are not all right. Um, so space needs to be given uh, to breathe, to grieve, to catch up and to process. All black leaders need that in this moment. I say that to those who lead with black leaders and I say that to the black leaders. Uh, we have been so remarkably resilient of people um, that our very existence is a sign of hope. And for me, uh, for me, a note um, that God is still working um, because with all I know of history, there should be no black people in America. Uh, there's just been too much trauma over time. And so, uh, but taking that in, we often think we're going to be all right. And so I say to those leaders, breathe take time. You are not all right. Uh, you need uh, to, to be able to take care of yourself and whether that means uh, experiencing community uh, now through Zoom calls with your line sisters and your line brothers and your uh, <laughs> and the folks you know from high school uh, bringing together reunions. If it means really long walks. Um, if it means uh, jogging or running. Uh, I thought I was running until I did it with somebody else and I found out I'd been jogging the whole time. Uh, <laughs> increased physical activity. Um, yeah. These are things that we have to do to be able to, to provide. Now, now, I also do think there is a responsibility that comes with leadership. Uh, and so, and as much as um, we who are called leaders in this moment and within these organizations um, need care, we also still have a duty uh, to the communities that have sent us for it. And so I think we also have to put our uh, relative pain in context 
uh, of the great distress of scores of Black people in our communities, right? Um, I, I went to a, a, a meeting one time, uh, you and I both work in philanthropy, and, and I went to a meeting uh, of the my first meeting of the Association of Black Foundation Executives years ago. Uh, and um, and I, I was in this room and people were talking about trauma and people were talking about, you know, how difficult it is to work in these systems and these organizations. And I have the privilege that I've worked in philanthropy as a CEO. So these are people who have been program officers, program directors, vice presidents. And they were talking about how racist these systems were, how difficult it is to work in. And I'm sitting in the room like, y'all are the most educated well-off group of Black people I've been in in a long time with this many. Are we really sitting here complaining, right? I was so wrong. Um, I was so wrong because I understood this responsibility piece without understanding the care piece. And I think we've got this piece where we take one and not the other. And so I think it's important for us to care for ourselves and it's important to know that there are those who have it so much worse than us and it is our absolute duty and obligation to be our fully black, brilliant selves, our fully brown, brilliant selves, to figure out how to work the systems that we have been engaged and allowed space in, in order to do better for our black and brown sisters and brothers who are literally on the street, who are literally being killed. And so that balance is critically important. It, it requires so much of us that we have to uh, take care uh, of ourselves. And, and that, finally, I'll say, requires us to keep a deep and consistent proximity to our people who have need. Uh, I encourage people, you, we've got to keep those relationships. Uh, I encourage people, if they're people of faith, um, that your voluntary spaces say a lot about you, right? And so you, if, if where you go every day is determined by capitalism, who got to be in here to get paid a certain amount of money, and you spend 40 hours a day 60, I mean, 40 hours a week, 60 hours a week, 80 hours a week in that space, then your other time should be spent in ways where you're in loving and diverse environments um, that expand and extend beyond the constraints of capitalism. You ought to be in a church, a synagogue, a mosque with some poor people that you have deep and lasting relationship with um, so that you every now and then can see their face when you're making a decision about the allocation of resources in the context of a capital environment, uh, no matter what that environment be. Uh, so I think that proximity to need is really important for us uh, as well, especially as Black folks. Mm -hmm. the, the last um, piece that you uh, led me right into is the role and the responsibility of philanthropy. And, uh, you know, I'm watching uh, people here and across the country in the aftermath of George Floyd, right? It's been in the aftermath of Mike Brown, you know, let's get, let's get black men to work. <laughs> you know, like there's, there's always these, these reactions, right? And I remember watching this in Ferguson and saying, you know, it wasn't because he was unemployed that he got shot. Thank you. So I don't understand the rationale, but needless to say, yes, there were resources needed, but the solution didn't match the problem. Yes. And so I'm watching some of that happening and I either read it in the Ferguson Commission or um, something that you had written that do you think that we are making movement towards a more just future or are we doing things in the appearance of action and response? 
Yeah, I mean, we've got this, you know, instant popcorn culture where we think we got to have the answer overnight. Uh, one of the things we're pretty intentional to do with the Ferguson Commission process, uh, having read about other commissions, having read about these riot commissions in the past, is we realize that they tend to be underfunded. They tend to not have enough time to do their work. People want to answer in 90 days for a problem that's taken 90 years. Um, and they tend to be used by political forces in order to manage people's and process people's emotions and feelings. So we're very intentional that we're going to take our time. And we're going to take our time so that we can do the education over the period of time and educate community members over time in an issue that was going to take time. So all of those like, you know, 30 day solutions, right? You can, you can, you can discount all of them, right? Um, because folks have not taken the time to really listen and think deeply about the issues, the challenges, and the problems. And they've not listened to the people who have the challenges uh, in their everyday life. And so I, I do think we've got to spend time um, listening and we've got to invest for the future. Uh, one of the things that we were not able to get done, uh, but that we called for in the Ferguson Commission report was a 20 year managed fund for racial equity infrastructure in the St. Louis region. We said we need to invest in having the resources to do this work for a generation. And we need to put that in an endowment or some managed fund because if we deploy it all now, it'll be gone. Somebody's going to forget there's going to be another problem because you, you know the, the terminology of funder ADD. You know, it, you know, every new cycle, new logic model, new theory of change, um, new leader, um, there's going to be a different way the foundation do their work, right? So we needed to invest in civic infrastructure to be able to pursue this work over a generation. And that is a critical thing. We, we didn't get that done. And we just this year launched it. Uh, we launched a collaborative fund for racial healing uh, here now six years after the moment because so many people wanted to respond with immediate checks, to your point, for workforce development, for infant mortality. Everybody chose their issue. They made it fit their thing without realizing that their thing didn't work. So I, I like to center this story about the journey of Ferguson. Three things happened that year. Number one, 2014 was the 250th anniversary of the city of St. Louis. And so we made a decision about how we would honor that, honor that anniversary. Would we do major civic planning and visioning for the future or would we mark it with high celebration? We said, no, eh, let's not do that planning stuff. Let's just have a bunch of parties. And so we're gonna have a big party. Uh, our birthday in St. Louis is Valentine's Day. So on Valentine's Day, particularly because it's cold in St. Louis, we had a burning love party. It was a big bonfire outside in Forest Park, right? We had a big party, da, da, da. Then all over town, uh, we had these birthday cakes. So at all the significant locations in town, you had a birthday cake, you know? So near the arts, it was a birthday cake. By City Hall, it was a birthday cake. Near the first Emo's Pizza, it's really important for St. Louis, Emo's Pizza, there was a birthday cake. Um, and so all these places, that's what we we're going to do. We were going to have this big celebration, and that was it. And then in June, we got something to celebrate, right? So Charity Navigator named St. Louis the most charitable St. Louis region in the country. We ain't hating on Minneapolis, but that's what happened in 2014, right? So we thought we started patting ourselves on the back. We're so wonderful. We're so charitable. Two months later, Michael Brown lay in the middle of the street. Four and a half hours. So here, we're patting ourselves on the back saying we got no planning to do. 
We're so charitable. We invest in all these wonderful programs. And here, for four and a half hours, we were arrested by the image of an 18-year-old, an 18-year-old, an 18-year-old, who all our charitable impulses could not save from being dead in the street and laying there to the terror of his neighborhood and his mother trying to get past yellow police tape to get to her son for four and a half hours. Charity did that. So to respond with charity would mean we would spend our time doing that again. We would do that again when Antonio Martin was killed by police uh, just on Christmas Eve later that year. We would do that again uh, when Von Derrick Myers was killed in the city of St. Louis in that same year. We would do it again when Kajimi Powell would be killed by police even though he had a behavioral health challenge. He had had essentially what my mama would call a case knife that you make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with. And they had guns. Over the course of that year, we would experience that exact same trauma four times while we were having big conference, press conferences to present oversized checks to undersized missions because we refused to do the critical work to build the capacity to change public narrative and change public policy. So what's philanthropy's role? I think part of what philanthropy has to do is to be the patient venture capital to invest in building the infrastructure to change policy and narrative over time. Meaning we can't be content to count the number of heads in a classroom or count the number of black boys that we can put a white shirt and a tie on and say they went through our six-week job training program even though we weren't going to hire them for the job on the other side. We actually have to invest in organizing. We have to invest in advocacy. We have to invest in narrative change work. We have to invest in media strategies so that we can actually do the work to reduce the stigma of blackness, the criminalization of blackness off of people to change public opinion. And that will help to inform and shift narratives to change public policy. Having done some of that work with the brilliance of the young black organizers in this community, A two-year campaign, everybody who does public policy work knows it takes five to seven years to do anything. A two-year campaign closed the medium security jail here in the city of St. Louis earlier this year because of young black and brown organizers who, who, some of them were unemployed. Their leader was working as a pharmacy tech during the Ferguson uprising in 2014. But she's now leading an organization called Action St. Louis that built the power that mapped the issues, that implemented a strategy to close a jail that makes available $16 million a year to reinvest in health and human services in the city of St. Louis, right? Those are the things that can happen if we will invest, if we will venture to invest in things that we haven't seen work before. And we will invest in public policy and community-engaged strategies and not just another program. And if we will support leaders who don't talk like, look like, smell like, act like us, but rather see things from a different perspective. And I think philanthropy, which has been historically the social venture capital for social change in America, has the responsibility to grab hold of that moniker again. And that can be liberative for all of us. Yeah, and I think um, just to uh, summarize, if that's even necessary, 
what, what we're talking about is for those people that are still in a charity mindset, we are not talking about charity. We are talking about justice. Yes. And that requires a different level of boldness, intentionality, patience. It requires us to play the long game. It requires us to adjust what was success in a charitable model are not the same measurements that you use in one that is about justice. Absolutely. It's spot on. I, I'm a preacher. I use too many words, Shonda. You got it right. <laughs> no, I, I, I love it, man. Look, I appreciate your time. I, I uh, greatly appreciate your leadership. Um, I have uh, thought about you as you are taking a baton from one of our legacy leaders, Marion Edelman Wright, uh, who has been a, a pioneer, a leader, a, a drum major for justice, like all of these things, right? You're taking it into the next level on behalf of our community and our young people um, in prayer, preparing them um, to be the leaders that will keep pushing us forward. Uh, I thank you for that. You know, I support you. Um, you know, even if we don't talk, no, I'm back here, like with my, my with, you know, cheering and, and supporting and ready to uh, stand with you if you need it. Thank you. Greatly appreciate it. It is, um, you know, we got a remarkable team there in Minneapolis too, led by Barty Warhe uh, uh, with CDF Ohio. And I'm excited about the work. Um, Mrs. Edelman is, the best way I can say it is she's, she's one of the mothers of the movement. Uh, and, uh, and, and in that sense, uh, along with the long tradition of Diane Nash and the long tradition of Ella Josephine Baker and the long tradition of Rosa Parks, and she is one who has uh, helped guide us into this moment and created an infrastructure, frankly, that now bridges from what Jim Lawson called the nonviolent uh, movement of America, which many of us call the contemporary civil rights movement, bridging from the civil rights movement to the movement for black lives. She has built and carried this institution and uh, with, um, with great love and honor for her uh, and for the children um, that she has served, uh, for quite frankly, all the servant leaders uh, across this country uh, whom she has helped to train and to nurture from the mayor of Stockton, California to the pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago. Um, she has planted a remarkable uh, crop uh, of leaders for this community and for this country. And I'm, I'm glad uh, to, to walk in that tradition and to walk with her in it. Uh, and, uh, and I look forward to, uh, to great things that God is doing um, through that remarkable mission. And I'm glad to be a part of it. Thank you. I hope you enjoy however you. you can in this moment, this day. Yeah, yeah. I, I enjoy by listening to my five-year-old. So thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks. We'll be in touch soon. Thank you. That's Reverend Dr. Starsky Wilson and Shonda Smith Baker. You can follow Shonda on Twitter at Shonda S. Baker. This is Sue Pak from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Shonda.